Well, good morning. If you'll open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, that's where we're going to be this morning, Matthew chapter 16. And as you're turning there, I'll ask you a question. Have you ever thought that you were really good at something only to find out that you weren't? Uh, it happens to me more often than I care to admit. Uh, but one thing that I thought I really knew about myself when I was younger, I don't know if I was reading too many Sherlock Holmes books or what, but I thought I was a very observant person, uh, that I, I could notice details in things. Uh, like if you know Sherlock Holmes, he could, he could tell that someone uh, had this job, lived in this area, and had this many amount of kids just by their shoes. And I thought, oh, well, maybe I'm not there but I'm almost there. I can, I can, I can get where you live by, by just a small little detail. Uh, that, that didn't last too long. Uh, once I got married, as, as all you married folk probably know, you start to find out a whole lot more about yourself. What I found out is that I'm not very observant. Uh, what, what, what I get is that I'm detail-oriented, that I can, I can notice a detail, uh, but I'm ignoring the big picture. It makes me terrible at puzzles. Uh, I, I get like caught up in this one little piece and how it's going to fit without seeing the big picture of it. Uh, I think a lot of people, when, when they come to this passage in Matthew chapter 16, are like that. Uh, they get really detail-oriented and, and focus on, on the nitty-gritty, if you will, uh, but they don't see the big, uh, the big picture. They don't, they don't see what's really happening, the, the big, important, sweeping narrative that's in this passage. They focus on the small uh, so I hope that today we're going to be able to look at the details, but hopefully we can see how the details fit into the big picture that's happening here. So Matthew chapter 16, I'll start reading at verse 18, and we'll read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll study it together. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we do come before you again humbled. Uh, we get to speak to the God of the universe, the sovereign I am, the one who sealed in the ocean with stone doors, who put the foundation of the earth into place. And you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through your word. What a miraculous gift we have in our hands. Your word communicated to us, mere men. God, I pray that even now, uh, as, as we sung just a few minutes ago, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be revealing your truth to us. Lord, that we know that we can do nothing in vain. My words are just my words if there is nothing coming from you. I pray that it would be your word that is preached to your people today. Uh, Lord, that you would be helping us to see how we can practically apply this passage to our lives. And Lord, I pray that you give us grace as well. There are many different opinions on some of these things, and I pray that you would help us to deal with them with grace. I pray that you just be with us now. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's start off right at the very beginning here, verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. Uh, I like Peter. I like Peter a lot. Now, I like Paul better uh, just because I wish I was him, but I'm not really a Paul. 
Uh, when, when I start to look at their lives and see who they were, their characteristics, uh, I would love to say that I'm more like Paul, but I often find myself relating more to Peter. Why? Because he had some great moments. He had some really strong, bold moments, but he also made some pretty terrible and huge mistakes. And, and as a sinful person, I, I relate to that. Uh, we see that he, he does awesome things like going and walking on the water, right? Like, pretty fantastic. But what happens? He starts to sink almost immediately. All right, he gets to have a couple steps there, but he takes his eyes off of Christ and he sinks down. Uh, even, even at the garden, we see when oh, all the other disciples run for their lives, right? We got the mob there and Jesus has just gotten done praying and the mob is here. Judas has kissed him. And, and who's the only one sticking around? Peter. That's awesome. That's bold, right? But then what does he do? gets out the sword and chops off a guy's ear. No, wrong move, right? All right, so he's, he's bold and he's courageous, but he also is a man, a, a real guy, and he makes some pretty terrible mistakes. Even uh, uh, here we see one of his biggest uh, uh, successes. We see it in verse 16 uh, when he has his confession. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So here, in the context, we have an awesome, just fantastic statement from Peter. Uh, that He says, when Jesus asks him, Who do you think that I am? He says, You're God. You're the Son of God. I believe you. I believe everything that you have taught. I, I am trusting in you. You are who you say that you are. Just like in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. Here, Peter is saying, I believe that. That's a pretty great success. And we see that really what's going to happen here is right in line with that. This is directly following that. All right. So verse 18, I tell you, you, Peter, this guy who, is, who has made mistakes, who is a real individual, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, uh, like I said, there's a lot of confusion on this passage. Uh, this has been debated about in, in Christendom for thousands of years, all right, since the very beginning. All right, uh, who, who is this rock? What is this all about? Well, uh, we have really three options that we can go with. Uh, let's look at each one of these. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So option one, we're going to look least likely to my view, uh, which I think is the most likely, all right? Uh, option one is Jesus. Option one, uh, Jesus is the rock. So when he's looking at Peter and he says, you, uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, um, uh, there, there are a few pros that we see with this uh, option one of Jesus being the rock. Uh, the first is that there's a difference in the Greek. Now, you're not going to see that. You're not going to see that in your Bible, but in the Greek, uh, there's a difference between these two words. Uh, we know that Peter uh, is a nickname, right? A nickname that Jesus gives uh, for Simon, right? You are Simon Bar-Jonah. He's son of Jonah. So he's, he's Simon, and he gives him the nickname Peter. What does it mean? Rock. So uh, that's why Rocky is a good movie, all right? Uh, it gets the nickname right there. All right, so uh, you are Rocky. Uh, and then on this rock, I will build my church. So the idea of this view of Jesus being the rock is, well, there's the difference in the Greek. There's Petros, all right, which is the first part. You are Peter. You are, on, uh, you are a rock. 
but on this rock, and there's a different word. All right, well, a different ending. It's Petra. All right, uh, that's feminine. So there, there's Petras, which is masculine, and then there is Petra, which is feminine. Now, so the pro would be, all right, well, why would there be a difference? Why would there be a difference if he's talking about the same person? We'll get to it. All right, another pro is that obviously we see this throughout Scripture, right? Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We see references that Jesus is the stone of what? Of stumbling. All right, so this is not some new idea that we only see here, but throughout the rest of the New Testament, we see Jesus alluded to be the stone. Even you go back into the Old Testament, uh, he's, he's the rock, right? God is the rock. So, so th those kind of fit together. All right, but uh, what are the cons here? Well, uh, it's definitely not your most plain interpretation. All right, if you were just to read it, uh, who would you think the, the rock would be? Well, you, you would probably think that it's Peter. All right, so it's not the most plain. It doesn't jump out to you. All right, and also, we know that Peter is a guy. All right, so of course, when it's alluding to him, it is going to be Petros. It's going to be masculine. And then to keep following through with the statement, it will then turn to feminine. So there's, there's no reason in the Greek that it has to be interpreted as a different thing. And there's no, nothing specific in this text that, that jumps out to you and say it. Now, I will say, as a conclusion for that option one, uh, it's a maybe. Like I said, this is something that's been kind of debated about throughout all of history, uh, at least as far as Christian history goes. Uh, there are a lot of good, good men. Even John MacArthur would hold to this view. So we can't just, if John MacArthur's on one side of an argument, you can't just toss it out. All right, so, so this is somewhat valid. All right, but let's go with option number two. What, would, what else could it have been? What is this rock that Jesus is going to build his church on? Well, some would say that it's Peter's confession. In verse 16, when he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, they would say that that's the rock, that confession that Peter is saying, I believe in you, Jesus, and he's going to use that to build his church. There are pros to this as well. Uh, again, the whole Petros Petra thing, all right, makes more sense with wordplay. Right, because he, he's saying, you are Rocky, that's his nickname for him, and then on this stone, so it would make sense for this other rock to then be referring to at least something relating to Peter, to be a play on words. All right, so there, there's a pro there. All right, the con would be uh, that, again, it's definitely not your most plain interpretation, and I would say that even both options only come after bad teaching on the third option. These, both of these views came out of the Reformation. Now, as I talked about last Sunday, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Reformation. All right, a lot of good things came from that. But did you know that there was actually no uh, foundational new teaching that came out of the Reformation? What, what was it? It was a return. It was a return to what was taught before, before everything got corrupted with the Roman Catholic Church. All right, so, so we can't just say, oh, well, because it has its roots in the Reformation, it's great. All right, uh, and, and I will say that this is the newest of these, two, uh, of these uh, three views. So conclusion may be more likely than option number one. All right, but let's look at option number three. All right, what else could it have been? This rock that Jesus is going to build the church on. Well, the pl most plain one, Peter. 
This makes the most logical and exegetical sense. You don't have to jump through hoops to, to figure it out and say, all right, well, I guess it has to be something else. All right, uh, wordplay would be consistent. And it makes conversational sense. All right, verse 16, Peter says, you are Jesus, and I believe in you. This is who you are, Jesus. And now it would make conversational sense for Jesus to look at Peter and say, you're right. And now this is who you are. Um, fits. Um, and in the Aramaic, there, there would have been no difference between Petros and Petra. It would have been the same uh, word. Um, I, I'm going to butcher it, but something to the effect of kalf. All right, so, so there's, there would have been no difference when Peter was actually uh, uh, having this said to him by Jesus. All right, but there's a big con. The big con is that Roman Catholics believe this. Right? And it's what they use to build the whole idea of the papacy, right? the, the idea of there being one pope. It, it comes down to this text. And there are other verses that they use to combine with it. But that's a pretty big con that the Roman Catholic uses this to say that Peter is the first pope. But do we see any reference to Jesus saying, you are the pope? No. There's, there's, no, there's no reference to uh, any kind of office or special uh, supernatural authority. He's just a rock. Uh, you are Peter, and, and on you, a stone, a rock, that isn't like some awesome thing. He doesn't say like a brick of gold that I'm going to build on. He says a rock. On this rock, I'm going to build my church. And also, just so we're all on the same page, look how quickly the rock is going to turn into Satan. I mean, if you just look at it here, uh, he, in just a few verses, right? Uh, let's, let's even read from verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took, uh, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Verse 23. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So very quickly, if you were to hold this Roman Catholic view of, all right, well, if Peter is the rock, then he's also the pope and has all that special authority, uh, uh, then, then you're following Satan, right? Uh, very quickly, the rock turns into Satan. So conclusion, I would say that yes, that Peter is the rock, but that doesn't mean the same thing as what the Roman Catholics believe. Why? Because we have the rest of of the text. All right, um, but let's, let's stop for a second and think about that. If it is true, and I, like I said, these are three valid viewpoints. Many different Christians hold different viewpoints on this. All right, but if we're going to take that third option, how awesome is that, that God is going to use a really messed up person uh, to, to build on, on him and say, I'm going to start the church through this one corrupt individual? It's a good, good application for us of saying, well, God can use anyone. He doesn't have to use just the intellectual. Peter was a fisherman. He doesn't have to use the perfect. First, there are none. But second, Peter is very messed up. He makes all kinds of mistakes, and God is going to use him to do something awesome so that 2,000 years later, the church is here. We're here. And still, even beyond that, the gates of hell will never be able to prevail against the church. Why? Because God used somebody. That's pretty cool. Or right, what else? 
All right, well, like I said at the beginning, sometimes we focus on the details and we can just um, get kind of uh, zoned in on those things and not see the big picture. All right, is the rock the whole idea of this passage? Is, is it the main theme of this passage, of him being the rock? No. It's not the focus in the slightest. What's the focus? These words, I will build my church. That's you. That's me. We can think of the church as the, the uh, universal church, every Christian who has ever existed, but I believe that also applies to the local church because that's what we are. We're believers. All right, and he says these words, I will build my church. So the rock isn't the focus. That's really just uh, Peter, or, uh, Jesus' introduction to get to the point that he wants to make. All right, I will build my church. The focus is on Jesus and his actions. And that should still be the case, right? When we're talking about anything regarding to the church, it shouldn't be that uh, a certain individual is the focus. It shouldn't be that a certain system is the focus. Of course, it should be Christ. All right? And yet we try to make styles and spectacles the, the focus of our church, don't we? We try to do that. We think, oh, well, we, if we just have this one program or we do this one certain thing, uh, and, and then we can do something about building the church. No, he says, I'm going to do this. I will build my church. It's his. It's his possession. He owns it. It's not your church. Yeah, sure, you might belong to this local body. I'm a member here. All right, it, but it's not ours. It's not pastors. Even though he works so hard in ministering to us, it's not his. Jesus says, it's mine. And I'm going to do something with it. What is this? This thing that he owns? It's the church. Uh, the Greek, you've probably heard this many times, ecclesia. Called out ones. Assembly. Gathered ones. And uh, that, that's what he's going to do. He's going to gather for himself a people. When Jesus is talking to Paul, he, he, he says that there are many in this city who are mine and they, that you need to preach the gospel because I have many in this city. That's what Jesus does. He has people. He owns them. We see that in Ephesians chapter 1. And he calls them out. He calls them out from their sin. He calls them out from their sinful lifestyles and says, come together through the gospel. And Peter, uh, we see that he has really nothing to do other than being the rock. He's not going to start anything. All right, yes, we see Acts chapter 2 and uh, him giving the sermon, speaking in tongues, all of that, the Pentecost, the foundation of the church. But who is the one that is actually building it? Jesus, because it's his. It wasn't that once Jesus ascended that the disciples, and this is actually a pretty prevalent view for many unbelievers, uh, that, that, all right, Jesus is gone. In their view, he died. All right, um, what are we going to do? It's not that Peter gets together with the other disciples and they all look at each other with blank stares and Peter says, I've got an idea. I'm going to start the church. That's not what's happening. There's a famous heretic uh, who has now accepted the term. Uh, you might have heard of the guy, Rob Bell, Love Wins. He has... Uh, uh, doesn't believe in hell, and everyone loved that uh, as far as secular people go. Uh, he came out with a documentary. Someone made him a documentary. It's called The Heretic, and he's 
he's loving the term, but he's, he said this in the trailer for it. Jesus would be absolutely mortified that somebody started a religion in his name. All right, this is, you might, you might hear that and you go, well, what an idiot, right? Like, that's just terrible. Uh, who would ever listen to that? Thousands, thousands of people are listening to that guy. He's not just some random guy who's out in the woods, has all these kinds of weird ideas. Uh, this is someone that culture is saying, yes, he's someone to listen to. Uh, I believe Time Magazine called him the next Billy Graham a couple years ago. All right, so, so this is a guy with a, a pretty big influence, and he says something like this, and a lot of people listen to that. But here, according to God's word, we don't see that. Jesus is the one who starts Christianity. Jesus is the one who starts the church. The church, if you think about it, was Jesus' plan A. He established it, he builds it, and he protects it. So he says, I will build my church. He's going to build it. What, what can we get out of that? I think four characteristics about this idea of him building the church. One, that it's absolute. It is going to happen. There, there's, no, there's no ifs. He doesn't say, if this happens, or if Peter is faithful, then I can build my church. He says, I will build my church. I will do this. Second, we see that he's active, that Christ is doing this. Uh, it's not an apathetic situation uh, where Christ just kind of takes a back seat. Uh, once he ascends into heaven, he's uh, chilling at the right hand of the Lord. He's not doing that. He's not reclined. He's active. Even now, I will build my church. Third, we can see that it's advancing. Uh, build is oikomen, uh, which means uh, to, to build up, but it also has the idea, the tense, that it's future active indicative. What does that mean? That's kind of gibberish to me, right? Uh, well, it means that it's going to continue. It's going to be ongoing. It's not just that he's going to build it and it's done. He, uh, Pentecost, he built the church, and now Peter and the apostles are running it until uh, we see succession happen like the Roman Catholic Church believes. No. Ongoing, advancing. Jesus is continuing to build it. So today, he is still building his church. He's still building Moose Jaw Baptist. It's not us. It's him. Fourth, successful. I couldn't keep with the A's. I tried. Uh, fourth, we see that it's successful. The gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. Nothing can stop the church. It's why when we say that the church is the hope of the world, we aren't saying that it's because of us. We're saying it because of what we possess, the gospel. And we say, yes, the church is the hope of the world because Jesus is the hope of the church, and he's not going to fail. He's going to succeed. The gates of hell. There's lots of sermons that can be preached on that. What he exactly he's referring to. Is it the dump outside in Jerusalem that's on fire? Uh, I think we can all gather that it's talking about evil. We can put it as vague as that and say Satan, sin, evil, it's not going to win. He will be successful. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not going to try. Right? Uh, the idea is that they shall not prevail against it means that they're not going to win, but there's still a fight. And we see that throughout history. Like I said, even the Reformation, I think, is one of the major victories that God won for his people by getting the gospel back, by even having the Bible in your hands. That's a miracle of him. 
showing that he's going to succeed in building his church. So you might be thinking, all right, that's great. That's great, Dean. That doesn't mean anything to me. Uh, It does mean quite a lot. Let's stop for a second and imagine if Jesus is the church builder, then why do we so often try to take his job? We try to steal his job from him. When we rely on our own efforts, when we say, I can do this, if I do this program, or I listen to this teacher, or if I go out uh, and, and do this specific action, then automatically this church will be built. No, you're, what you're saying with that is that Jesus is a liar. It's that bold. He says he's going to build it. What happens when we question the size of the church? Well, we're saying Jesus is a fool because he's, he doesn't know what he's doing. What happens when we critique the structure of the church? And we say, oh, I don't, you know, like I like our church, but I don't like them at my church. I wish we could have that couple and not that one. You might laugh, but you do it, right? I've done it. I've been a pastor and I've done it. So, like, I guess, yeah, I can agree with Paul. I'm the worst of sinners, but I don't think I'm the only one. When we do that, we're saying Jesus is mistaken. Fourth, what, what can we get out of this? When we doubt the future of the church. When we're so scared about making a move that, that you know, what, what will happen if we follow God's word in this way? You're saying that Jesus is going to fail, that he's going to screw up, that he's going to make a mistake, and that the church will no longer cease or will no longer uh, be there. When you look at the world and you say, I think evil's going to win. And maybe you've never said those exact words, but maybe you've felt it. When you look at the world and you see things that are happening, you say, evil's going to win. Nope. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church, including our church, belongs to Jesus, and he always takes care of his possessions. All right, but he has given us something. All right, at least he's going to give something here that is going to enable the church to go out and do these things, all right, and to continue under his guidance. Verse 19, some of the most mysterious Words here, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's hard. Uh, I, I sat down, and I'm thinking, what, what does this text say? Uh, I've gone through Romans 9, I can, I can parse that out, but what in the world is God talking about here? Because you read it, and you say, well, this sounds... Like some kind of secret society. I'm going I'm to give you the keys, and this mysterious key is going to give you power. And uh, it almost sounds, if you're just reading it here in, in the English here, it, it sounds like it gives us power over God. Right? Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's pretty weird. What is he saying here? What are these mysterious keys? Well, I think there are three keys that, uh, that help us understand what the key is. Jesus owns the keys. All right? He owns them because he gives them. 
Or you can't give someone something that you do not possess for yourself. All right? You don't get to go rob the store and hand it over and say, I'm giving you this. No, it still belongs to the store. All right, so Jesus says, I'm going to give you the keys. So Jesus owns them. All right, number two, uh, it says that they're the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is a term that Jesus uses a lot. Uh, and, and despite what you may have heard about the kingdom and referring back to Revelation, usually when he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, he's talking about salvation in general. Uh, so, so these keys well, will, if you think about it, open heaven. All right, and we see that there's power in these keys, the binding and the loosing. Again, we, we dive into the Greek and we can know that they're future perfect. So really how they should be interpreted is shall have been bound. All right, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So it's not really like a cause and effect thing that is happening here. You bind it on earth, it'll be bound in heaven. What it's saying is you bind on earth and it shall have been bound in heaven. Uh, Leon Morris, famous commentary, uh, commentarian says this, a matter of inspiration, this is what it is, a matter of inspiration or heavenly guidance rather than a cause and effect. All right, so it's, it's us through the, the providence of God working with his will. All right, so this is, this is what the, king's, uh, the, the key ring does. So what are they? Well, I think the easiest question we have if we're thinking about, all right, well, kingdom of heaven is salvation. What alone can open heaven? The gospel. That's the only thing. That's the only thing that, that has the power to open heaven. So if, if the keys are the gospel, then who's got them? Who's got the keys? The Roman Catholics would say that it's Peter. And Peter alone, every, every painting, every sculpture, every piece of art that you will find within the Roman Catholic Church that has Peter, he's got the keys in his hand. They would, they would say it's him. But if Peter isn't a type of pope, why give him the keys alone? Why, why, why should he be the one only to possess this? Well, if we are to read our Bibles, if you turn over probably just a page to Matthew 18, verse 18, we're going to see this again. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But who is he talking to? Is it Peter? Is he having a closed door sit down with the soon-to-be pope? No. It says when all the disciples had gathered. So who's got the keys? Not Peter. He's just a rock. You got the keys. The church has the keys. This is what Martin Luther taught. It is true that the keys were given to St. Peter, but not to him personally or alone, but rather to the person of the Christian church. So who's got the keys? You do. What do those keys do? They open salvation. So you better use them. So here we can see three things as we close up here. When Jesus says, I will build my church, First thing that we can see is that the church has protection. All right, so you can take confidence in that. You can take confidence and boldness that you belong to Christ as the church. You think about it, he's God. Does God ever fail? No. 
Uh, I, I do a catechism with my son uh, nearly every night. And we start with God is faithful and God is good so we can trust him. All right, God is faithful. He's never faltered. He's never made a mistake. He never made a promise that he broke. So yes, we can trust him. When he says, I will build my church, we can trust in that. Also, don't fight for the hammer. Be faithful and let Jesus build the church. Don't think that you can do it on your own. Now, uh, a lot of people have asked me, like, what, what, am, what are we doing as uh, we left the church in Saskatoon? Uh, we are looking forward and hoping and praying about planting a church. And this is a verse that I have to keep on reminding myself that I can't do it. I'm not going to fight Jesus for the hammer. He, he's got to be able to, uh, he's got to do the work, and I have to be faithful in that. Another thing, don't critique or complain about his handiwork. Uh, don't, don't complain about your fellow member. He's your brother. She's your sister. Be thankful for the fruit of his labor. Be thankful for what you have in the church. Another thing we can see that the church has power. We've got the keys. It's in our hands. It's right there, literally, in your hands. You have the gospel written out. Maybe you're scared about how, I don't, I don't know exactly what to say. What if they ask me this? What if they ask me that? You got a book that literally says everything for you. Just, just say that. And we have to remember what Paul says in Romans 1.16, that the gospel is the power of God. It's the literal power of God. It's not that it's just powerful. It, it's his power. And the church's purpose. Why do we have the keys? Why is Jesus building this church? Is he building it just for fun? No, he has purpose when he does anything. Even if we look in the Old Testament like we were doing this morning, and we're talking about uh, things that the, that, uh, the Israelites certainly didn't understand would have been uh, a reference to the Messiah, but we see that God does things on purpose so that later we can understand more about him. God definitely has a purpose. Jesus has a purpose for the church. So why do you have the keys so that you can open heaven? Now, again, that's not about you. There's nothing about Peter being the rock that enables this. It's, it's the key. It's what it's going to do. But we have it. The church, you and me, we are to live on mission so that others can hear and believe. Let's pray.